Nick. Hello, Steve. How are you? Oh, I'm a bit tired this morning. I've um, tired this morning. Yeah, sore legs. I went running last night. I've decided. I, Ooh, I've, nice. I've kind of uh, done a taster session for a running club right. in my hometown. Yeah, because how I'm, did it go? Well, I'm supposed to be doing a half marathon later in the year, so I thought this will be a way to focus it. And um, it went all right. I joined a group, and it said it was five to six miles, ten minute miles, right? Okay, so, so that's, that, I mean, it's not that's not it's not completely slow miles, but they're not mega fast. I thought I can do that because I did. I actually did a ten k in about you know nine and less than nine and a half minute miles, like a few weeks ago. And I thought that's fine. Not going to problem. Anyway, did it. Really friendly bunch. It's really nice. Um, yeah. You know, but they went, <coughs> it was up and down hills. We went more than seven miles and we went like almost about nine and a half minutes or less. So I was absolutely, I mean, they've just got these visions of like these pebbly hills trying to keep up with these two old pensioner men. Like, who are really fit. Yeah. And suddenly, <laughs> like when you're watching that, suddenly you just, you get this vision of yourself with your big fat belly and your man breasts bouncing around at the back with the red face it was sort of so lagging re- <clears throat> behind everyone else it was a bit so really the thing you're annoyed by is not that other people are fitter than you it's that they were imprecise with their estimation of their running speed well That's it, what wasn't, you're annoyed it, it by. was inaccurate but i didn't yeah. go i just went i just went with the flow and i sort of pushed myself i did a bit of talk i was having a chat you know a bit of a social thing mm. to begin with first couple of miles after that nothing just, just like top of my lungs. <laughs> no point Please talking to me. Please. No point having a conversation. <laughs> the yeah, fat new enough. guy. Well, anyway. was it was it one of those is it one of those um, running clubs where everyone's like mega focused on like being the world's greatest runner? Or no, 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 okay. absolutely. Because sometimes no. people can take things a little bit too seriously. I find at those things, right? No, they all fun think runners. They're, they're all about fun to, Okay, they're good. They're all about to compete. They're all very, um, they're, very nice. I like them. They're much friendlier than the... Oh, sorry, cycling lot. They're much friendlier. <laughs> <laughs> we do that ooh, burn. Yeah, yeah, it's true. They're much more normal. Anyway, anyway, so that was good. Shall we... Um, so, how are you? Sorry, I was going to crack on, but how's things with you, Steve? All right? <clears throat> yeah, I'm okay. Um, I went up to Whitby uh, this week uh, just for one day. Um, see any vampires? Dog for a walk. See any vampires? Didn't see any vampires, but I stayed in a room in a hotel called the called the uh, stoker's room and it had like oh. vampire bats on the wall and wow. nothing quite worked and everything so, but i always feel like going to north yorkshire is a bit like going back in time you know every like all of the kind of you know the acceptable nature of like oh it doesn't have a shower and there's no light in this room and there's no quite enough space and like everything's not quite fit for purpose that's what you want it to be like though it's like an american, were- american werewolf in london style <laughs> yeah, permanently yeah. entrenched in the 70s it was true, but anyway, with a bit great. of luck, Jenny Agatha will emerge from the shower in your room. That sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> why did I think you'd go there? Anyway, why did you just yeah, go for? Good. Why did you just go for one night? Why didn't you just push it and go for two nights? Well, we're too. i just busy. I had to get blah 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 blah. blah. blah okay, blah, speaking blah. of busy, then we better crack on, Steve, so you can get on with your important activity of the day. So let's do some science. <laughs> Why do we need Petrick, Oscar, Isaac, Newton, So, Steve, I am um, recently. I we've been doing conferences in person again, 
right? Nice, isn't it? Oh, Science conferences, yeah. So they're back. They're back. They've been yeah. away and they're back. They're back. I'm going to one in just a couple of weeks abroad. I could have gone to one this week, my students at it, but we've had seminars, right? So internal yeah. seminars. That's my first toe into the pond. And we had one recently, and we I work, there's a centre in the university, and it's called the Centre, it's really catchily named, Centre for Human Development, Stem Cells and Regeneration. The C-H-D-S-C-R. <laughs> it's obviously a genius name, that. Sorry, apologies to whoever named it. But um, anyway, it's, um, yeah, we, we have a seminar series. We've got a bunch of people in the uni who do that sort of research, all to do with, like, um, regenerative medicine, stem cells... Sounds tissue. right up your alley, mate. Yeah, regenerating yourself, regrowing, re, re, rebirth, that sort of thing. Pluripotency, all those sorts of things. Yeah, good. Is, yeah. There, is there lots of pe- is there a few people in like the generative medicine field? Because I'd imagine, like, you've got to paint the picture sometimes, right? You've got to like, you know, you've got to think like what's possible in the future. You need the kind of um, the Carl Sagan's of the regenerative world, yeah, the right? twats. Like, regrowing and all. <laughs> yeah, you do get a lot of them, but you also you get a lot of kind of just jobbing. And, and it's really broad, so it's not really a field. It's like just an all-encompassing area. Okay. So, anyway, in this lecture, there were you know all the students give their talks. All there's like about maybe fifteen academics with an interest in it. So their students mm-hmm. talk. We all sit round. It's a very pleasant, lovely group of people. Eat a nice sandwich. You know, drink some coffee. It's a nice. Uh, you know, the building we did it in was a sort of yeah. yeah different from the normal. Anyway, so one of the people who's joined the university recently is a guy called um, Owen, Owen Ackerman. He's, he managed to score a big coup this year, a coup for it. And we got a really exciting external speaker. And okay. The, the external speaker is a chap called Professor Austin Smith. Now, have you heard of Austin Smith? I feel like I have. Doesn't matter. I anyway, he's, he's, Was he, wasn't he a vice chancellor of, some, of the university or something? No, he wasn't, no. He's a he's a he's a stem cell bod, and he's kind of like one of the the like well known figures in embryonic stem cell research. Okay. So like, I think I just think, oh, everyone knows him. He's world famous. Everyone knows who he is. He's like the king of like that sort of thing. You know, everyone knows. Of course, if you speak to someone outside your field, you never heard of him. (laughs) But okay, but like you know, let's let's put it in 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 context. If he was a like a, a like a um, a pop artist. Who are we talking? Is this Bob Dylan? Is this Prince? Is this Elvis? What's the What's the analogy? Oh, here? that's a difficult one. Maybe Phil Collins. <laughs> monster. But what less, a monster. But less cuddly. Less cuddly. <laughs> more spiky. Maybe more like a kind of um, uh, Ian McCulloch from Echo and the Bunny Man. Someone like that. Okay. That's a pretty low bar. But yeah. Well, you went. If you went, you you would you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side. You wouldn't want to say anything okay, contrary. Yeah, understand. they might get. Right, right, right. Yeah, they're not like Phil okay. Collins. Phil Collins would just give you a kiss and buy you a drink, wouldn't he? But Ian McCulloch would probably punch you in the nose. <laughs> so that's the kind of the okay, analogy. Okay, I, I think I've got exactly. I understand the type of person we're dealing with now. Anyway, he gave this talk at the end. So it was at the end of the day. You know, he rocked up. He, he, to be fair, he didn't come to all of the talks. He came sort of halfway through the afternoon. And then he came and did his talk at the end. And it's an hour. It actually went off an hour and a half. Wow, it's a long, it's a long talk. <laughs> well, he just, he just totally ignored how long he had to talk for. That's the first sign of someone whose ego is kind of advanced yeah. <laughs> to a new level. Um, and he was very, very strident in his opinions. Very strident. And I took some, I was chuckling away to myself. And yeah. I started taking some notes and, you know, getting some quotes and what, he, what he'd said. Right. 
So I, this sounds like an analogous to um, when you when you saw the the, the super vet or whatever. It's oh called, yeah, except Dustin Smith is a proper scientist. He's not just a chancer like super. <laughs> but similar kind of level of enthusiasm <laughs> and and um, bombast, perhaps. Yeah. Anyway, I'd, the, the science is by the by. I mean, he's famous mm. for finding the sorts of things, chemicals you need to keep. Embryonic stem cells. So you've heard of embryonic stem cells. They exist for a short time in the early human embryo, and you can grow them in a dish, and they'll grow forever. And whenever you want to take one out, it will change. It can change into any of the tissues and cells present in an adult organism. Very cool. Extraordinary. Just one cell, you implant it into a mouse. It will grow lots of different tissues randomly, like a disorganized embryo. So. They were discovered in 81. He was around from the sort of late 80s through the 90s onwards doing work on it. Okay. And he's one of the people who found the best way to... Because originally you had to grow them in this really complex mass pot with other cells and like soup, serum, blood, all kinds of stuff he didn't understand. And he worked out... First of all, he found, found a chemical which could keep them undifferentiated, just one chemical. And That's then, cool. What is it? It's called leukemia inhibitory factor. Okay, is it a small molecule or is it a protein? It's like a protein. Okay. There's quite an interesting story behind that, but I don't have um, Mm -hmm. time to go into it today. But he discovered that, and then you had to add that with like a bit of serum, a bit of blood, so that's a bit undefined. And then later on they worked out two other factors to add. So now you can grow them with three well-defined factors, so totally understood how you kind of keep them. So he sort of did a lot of work to do with that, amongst other things. Some of the genes involved, he discovered one called Nanog um, with Ian Chambers in Edinburgh. Nanog is another gene which keeps them in a kind of this undifferentiated state, as it's called. And um, it's called Nanog, actually, because it's named after Tia Nanog, which is like a Celtic land of the ever young. So Nanog means ever young. (laughs) God. Anyway, so, um, yeah, but anyway, in the talk, right, so he's been around for a while and he's just got pissed off with different groups. Famously, in 2010, him and a bunch of other people wrote an open letter saying they were boycotting nature and science because the review process had been taken over by a cabal, a clique of people who were keeping their papers out and publishing suboptimal science, flawed science, and rejecting stuff which was the true quality. Obviously their stuff. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, because he was a big name, it made it got in the news, it was in the BBC and all the rest of it. Anyway, so on that backdrop, he gave this talk. Some quotes. He was talking about some minutiae of not what's called naive cells. Talking about a bunch of papers, four papers that came out. Yes, these four papers came out, and his quote was, complete nonsense. They're complete nonsense. <laughs> Sorry, these are in science or nature, were they? These are, yeah, these are like high profile things. <clears throat> wow. Complete nonsense. The funniest bit was so this guy, Owen, was in, he, he was an author on a paper and he just started dissing. On, on one of the complete nonsense I'm not, papers. I'm not, I didn't actually quite, well, it may have been, but it was Amazing. something you know, analogous to complete nonsense. And he was saying, oh, well, I noticed, <laughs> that, Owen, that you, were a, published Evans. You, were, you were an author on one of those papers and, you know, blah, blah, blah. He sort of skirted over it, but he wasn't, mm. he wasn't um, worried about it. And what other things? And then he talked about these papers about um, people are trying to make these artificial embryos now called blastoids. Mm. So rather than getting an embryo from, like, a, a woman, they were getting trying to use embryonic cells to make an artificial embryo. So you could just make them on demand from a cell. Crazy, right? So he's talking about these blastoid papers. He goes, he's talking and says, well, 
and he long rambling speech about it. Then at the end he says, well, all of those papers are a complete failure. <laughs> all of those papers are a complete failure. And he said, human blastoids might just be rubbish. Amazing. <laughs> so anyway, this went on for ages and it was really entertaining. And um, yeah, it just goes to show, I kind of think you get a lot of scientists and I was talking philosophically to a couple of people afterwards. You get a lot of scientists and they're so right. They do such good things and they become like so confident in their rightness mm. that they will get things wrong, but then they'll just be absolutely uh, completely refractory to any criticism and just bang on about the stuff that they're wrong about as well. And I just feel sometimes that that's a trait. Yeah, the, when you think about famous survive, scientists... survivor bias. I think certainly true, yeah. You can certainly have examples where, given that I was right in the past, I must be right in the future. Um, and, you know, particularly if people are big names and very senior, you can understand how people might think that, right? They were like discovered Nanog. I mean, you know, who am I as a, some a junior person? Um, but, but then people even are... tell him, people tell him. And then, but they, the point is, it's, it's a trait of the personality, I think, not to mm. be able to accept, not, or not to be able to think, well, actually, I, oh, I could be wrong here. Ooh. But maybe you need that personality to be right in the first place, Nick. Maybe if you were so unsure with your science all of the time, <clears throat> when you had to take that leap of faith to stand out and say, actually, I think this is an entirely different way of there's a new gene here or there's a new there's a new set of um, there's a new system we haven't seen before. Like maybe maybe it's a requirement to be a you know megalomaniac. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> like, but it made me think about. I mean, I'm not talking about Austin Smith here because he's by mm, no God. means on that spectrum. But there was an element. Of it, I can understand. It. Yeah, and, no, no, I get it. And like, I'm. Th it got me thinking of people like you know we've talked about before, like Linus Pauling. You know, discovered the alpha helix in proteins, amazing. You know, underpins biochemistry. Discovered the nature of the chemical bond, underpins physical chemistry. And then he bangs on about vitamin C for like thirty years and refuses to accept that he might be wrong. And I'm just, I just think that that is a. At some point, very... you're pop committed, aren't you? You can't turn back. You can't turn <coughs> round and go. It's, it's, <coughs> it's, yeah, a, it's a, it's a, right. it's a feature of psychopathy, and I think it's, it, it, you get a lot of that in in these um, extremely successful scientists, and uh, you start to see it emerge. Of course, there are millions, there are loads, sorry, not millions, but there are loads of people who just definitely not like that and are really humble and just carry on bumbling away and they've done great things yeah, but, very gracious yeah <clears throat> but um, anyway i thoroughly enjoyed that meeting and i enjoyed seeing the talk and it was like when he was talking because he's such yeah. a big you know he's talking from the early discoveries all the way to modern stuff you know the room the, the, air, the atmosphere you could cut it with a knife you know maybe mm. i was imagining it because i was so like you know totally consumed by it. i was really interested in it but like it just felt like, and he speaks so well and leaves so many yeah. pauses. It just allows you, and I just think that's a good example. Like I'm going to try it's a and performance. I'm yeah. going to try and learn to use fewer words. He just didn't over egg it. Just one thing at a time, very measured, very precise. And then we all went to the pub afterwards and had a beer. Hooray! <laughs> and I think I think this guy Owen had an argument with him or told him he was wrong, but then he just. He went there, but I think I think there's value in both of those things, right? I think and that's kind of the point of conferences and, and symposium and things is like well, partially is to see that kind of upfront how one presents the idea and the philosophy, and then having a beer afterwards or a cup of tea or something. Actually, you're allowed to actually have a bit of a dialogue, a bit of back and forth, and actually I think both of those things are important. Maybe you, know, you maybe. have to be able to do both. I think it's uncomfortable for um, you know to to just be rude to people. 
I think particularly for young scientists as well, right? Imagine you working your whole PhD on something, right? You're working really hard, coming every weekend, late nights, all that stuff, and then to have someone of that seniority just to call it utter rubbish or whatever the <laughs> quote was. <laughs> I, I mean, I probably do. I mean, I've got to watch what I say, but probably, you know, I am a, um, a bit, you know, could hold back. You're a sceptic, Nick. A little bit, yeah. Anyway, that was the conference, Steve, so I hope that I go to many more. Right, Nick. Steve. I want to talk to you about two things. Probably the most expensive experiment performed in the 1700s and why it never pays to be an entrepreneurial Frenchman. <laughs> this sounds really interesting. Um, what? what? What was the most expensive experiment and did it cost, what, a sovereign, something like that? Well, actually, they don't know exactly how much it costs, but it's probably one of the biggest experiments. They just it's, it's just estimated. So, so it's what I want to talk to you about is uh, Antoine Lavoisier. Oh yeah, probably heard of. Oh yeah, Antoine um, Lavoisier, who was a uh, Antoine Lavoisier, who was a French uh, chemist um, working in the seventeen hundreds. Yeah, he used to hang out with his wife in the lab, and they loved it. He used to work on Sundays, and it was their favourite day of the week. Ah, <laughs> that's cute. He discovered oxygen. Um, he named oxygen. He, he that's exactly right yeah there's a, some really so yeah he, he um there's a great he, when he first discovered worked a lot on gases Lavoisier um and there's a great uh, quote from uh, his uh, his lab book um when he first tried oxygen right so he's like my reader I'll read it out to you first my reader will not wonder that after having ascertained the superior goodness of the deflogenated air by mice living in it I should have the curiosity to taste it myself. I have, grat I have gratified that curiosity by breathing it. The feeling of it into my lungs was not sensibly different from that of common air. I fancied that my breast felt particularly light and easy for some time afterwards. Who can tell that in time the pure air may become a fashionable article in luxury? Hitherto, two, only two mice and myself have the privilege of breathing it. Wow. <laughs> Isn't it cool? <laughs> so he was... He was, a, he was a chemist and he was doing what chemists do, which is kind of, you know, break bonds and make bonds and, and, and kind of did a lot of work on um, liberating, well, well, like you say, discovered oxygen, but did a lot of work on trying to, for instance, tell the difference between something evaporating, which is just a kind of physical phenomenon, breaking intermolecular bonds, and, and something combusting, for the sake of argument, which, you know, reacting with oxygen, which is the creation of new bonds. Yeah. I mean, famously, he was... he. Uh he was very meticulous in measurement and weighing things so there was a big controversy about you know how things burn and what was going on when things burned and then um, exactly the yeah well, well that's what i'm gonna i'm gonna talk talk about so one one of the experiments was kind of two two people that were kind of working on this at the time um uh one was a kind of three french chemists um and then also um uh, uh joseph Priestley. Who were working on burning, and particularly one of the things they were looking at was burning diamond. Oh yeah, right. So it's quite a weird thing to think about from this, from this, from the face of it, right? Is you like, is you just you know, diamond burns, right? You don't think you think about diamond being extremely kind of chemically resistant and hard, right? It's in fact, it's the hardest thing at room temperature and pressure. Um, but you can you can burn it just in the way you can burn anything, right? So get, you just, like, can you, can you, burn you wood. I don't think you could just put a pop it on your fire though, could you? With your other so you need to heat it up to about 900 degrees. Yeah, that's pretty hot. It, that's more than yeah, a, but a common but a blowtorch. A blowtorch would do it. Oh, really? Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, in fact, it's one of the things that... So jewellers, 
when you can imagine it, right? When they're trying to melt metal to kind of like clasp your diamond on your fancy ring, oh, yeah. they have to be careful of this. Right. Because what happens is, you you know, when, once you've made your diamond, there's a couple of interesting properties of diamond. You know, one of them is that, you know, it's incredibly, the, the kind of the chemical bonds of it, they bond, it forms four bonds in this kind of tetrahedral arrangement that allows it to be extremely chemically stable. You say diamond's got uh, just, uh, it's got this crazy yeah. internal structure, isn't it? And it's like lots of interlocking triangles almost. Well, let's it's take a step back. There are, there are three forms of carbon, right, that just exist, right? So in the kind of elemental form, right, they're called allotropes or enantiomorphs, if you're, a, if you're an old school chemist. One of them's diamond, one of them's graphene, and the third one is, is, is Buckminster Fullerene, which is, you know, C60. What about graphite? Is that not one too? Sorry, graphite is the second oh, form. Right, Graphene is okay. a specific subtype of graphite. Yeah. Um, so they just so if you looked at the you know, so so what are they made of? They're all just made of carbon. carbon no yeah. other elements. It's all in like it's, it's crazy arrangement. And the carbon in diamond is like a crazy interlocking strip. It's all triangles, so it makes it really strong. It's, you know, so it's tetrahedral. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, it's like yeah. it's almost like the struts in some complex bridge that's like really resistant to like exactly. falling down. Yeah. yeah, it's really strong. Yeah. So, so some cool thing, aside on diamond then, right? So it's really cool thing. Diamond dissolves in in iron. So if you just take an, so, so not, this is not burning or evaporation. It dissolves like sugar does in tea. So, so if you just take a diamond and put it on like a large steel plate and put it in the oven, like your, your common or garden, like your oven in your kitchen, it will slowly dissolve into it and make steel. Isn't that cool? Don't understand it, but yeah. So. Well, no, I think that is like why does sugar dissolve in water? Well, sugar, exactly the same phenomenon. Sugar is like when things dissolve, it's usually individual molecules separating in solution. But with with diamond, that's it's a big, it's a big. Um, they were all in, intra, all intra. You know, they're all bonds between atoms, so you can't separate them. So I wouldn't understand how that would dissolve. So you're right. Just so it's heterogeneous. You know, so, so, so it occurs in different phases, but it's just at the surface. So you can where the carbon atom physically touches the iron atom. It can plop in just a little bit, so, so it's a slow process, but it does right. dissolve, and you can can see it anyway. Back to burning diamond, right? So you can imagine if you put diamond in air and you just heat it up to nine hundred degrees, what happens is that air, um, the, the oxygen in that air, forms CO two, carbon dioxide. And um, <clears throat> one of the this was kind of noted slightly before Lavoisier and and Joseph Priestley, and they, and one of the questions they had said, "Is this boiling like water? Is it just evaporating?" as we heat it, because what they've noticed is they take diamond and heat it up, it slowly gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Or is it undergoing chemistry? Is it burning, right? Um, and actually now, if you've ever seen, sometimes if you go to chemistry demonstrations, one of the things they might do is that they heat up a load of diamond and they pour a load of like kind of like small cheap diamonds that you would, you know, you wouldn't use an expensive diamond for this. And you pour in <clears throat> liquid oxygen, you get this big explosion of light and like smoke and fumes, and then everything's gone because it's all turned into CO2. Yeah. But at some point they had to, they didn't know what CO2 was, they didn't know what oxygen was, they had to figure these things out. So the cool, but this is the game. Right, okay, this is the crux, what did they do? Right, so they built this, how does one in the 1700s heat up diamond to a thousand degrees? Well, I know because I went to a place at the weekend that glass has been made for years and years and years and wood furnaces, you can get it up to 1200 degrees. So, like, people have been blowing glass since Roman time. So they must have been yeah. able to do it with a furnace. You could do it with a furnace, but then what you need to do is then focus all of that heat into one particular area because, obviously, diamonds are expensive, right, and it's difficult to get it into one place. So the way they did it, the way Lavoisier did it, was built a, basically a massive magnifying glass. 
Oh, the right, power so of like a, with an ant. So they just got a big magnifying <clears throat> and zapped it. Yeah. Right, okay. But Nick, it's, it's about, I'll show How you a picture of it, it but it's about it? 10 metres long. 10 metres long? Meet, six metres high, the machine that they built. All and made it's of just wood. A magnifying it looks like glass. a bit of, it looks like a massive trebuchet, but it's got a big a couple of massive magnifying What's a trebuchet? Glasses, like a big, like like a medieval, like, um, uh, like catapult. Oh, like, right, okay. So like a big yeah. wooden structure with a glass thing in the middle. A couple of glass things. So yeah. they and just then, wheel it out into the sunshine with a diamond exactly. at the bottom, and then it starts smoking, and that's it. <laughs> and then it starts smoking, and it disappears. And they go, right, well, okay, but they still didn't answer the question, right? They were like, uh, uh, like you know, what's happening? So anyway, let, so 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 let, let's go we'll go back in time. We've got Joseph Priestley doing that. Sorry, sorry, we've got Lavoisier doing that. Let's go over to England and Joseph Priestley. Joseph Priestley at the time was messing around with what we now call carbon dioxide, but hadn't figured it out. Right. And what he was doing is he lived next to a brewery and he noticed that um, the air that came off the fermentation vats of, of, of when you're making beer. Um, uh, <clears throat> the, 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 he lived the, in Clapham. It, so I think he lived in Clapham, Joseph Priestley. So there must have been a brewery right. there. I don't think there's one there now. Um, but he noticed that the, that gas would extinguish flames and kill mice. Yeah. Right. Um, and also, so then he took that gas and he dissolved it in water. Right, and then tasted the water. Oh yeah, and so he made the first person to make soda water, basically. Oh, right, so he was yeah. dissolving carbon dioxide, and he noticed that that when he did it, it had a sour, fizzy taste. Right, right which is right. what he noticed. Right, and then twenty years previous to that, um, Joseph Black had noticed that when you heat up chalk, um, it gave off a gas, and that gas could extinguish flames and kill mice. Right. So, 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 I was like, hang on a second, but is that the same gas? So where are we going so, with this? So well, they, they both discovered carbon dioxide, right? That's what they discovered. But, but yeah, but we did, they didn't know that. They didn't the know it. They just thought it was something. They call, probably called it phlogiston or something like that. Well, that's what oxygen was called, but yeah. Oh, right, okay. Um, right. So, so that, but here's the point, right? We've got two gases. How does one tell the difference? One of which we know kill, like you ingest and you make, it feels you awesome, makes you feel awesome. Lavoisier said that. Yeah. One of which kills mice and makes fizzy sour water. Yeah. Right. right? So now we've got a test for gas, right? So now we can answer the main question is, are, are we burning diamond or is it, uh, or is it evaporating? So, they, so here's the cool experiment, right? It's just so, so amazing. They, they took um, three sealed ampules, right? So a bit of glass with a diamond in it, right? So glass, so light can get in, we can heat up the diamond. But what we can do is we can put stuff around the diamond. So one they just had on its own, the diamond with one, without anything around it. The second one they had... <clears throat> um, a charcoal next to it which actually burns at a slightly lower um uh, ignition temperature yeah, and the fire. third one, <clears throat> and the third one was chalk which we know gives off oxygen right uh, so it goes to gives off co2 right and so the, and they put it in their big mega super machine yeah. blasted it with light and what yeah. they found was exactly what you'd expect is that in the case of the um uh in the case of the one with charcoal around basically the diamond didn't burn it didn't disappear because the air that was around it, the phlogiston, the, the oxygen, reacted preferentially with the charcoal first. And so then there was no oxygen in the air and so it couldn't burn. Right. And so what that meant is that it had to be a chemical reaction because it can't just be evaporating. Because if it was just evaporating like water in a, um, in a, in a saucepan. But couldn't the charcoal be stopping it evaporating as well? That's the other thing that could have happened. The... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's so charcoal. I mean, charcoal doesn't have a vapor pressure as such, right? So, you know, what, why would it be stopping it? Don't know because it's charcoal? in the way. It's like getting being evaporated first. It's been evaporated first. 
before think about the like a big diamond. one. No, like but the there's charcoal's no, there's been burnt first before but it's the not, diamond. But it's not being heated. It's not being heated. I thought the whole so, thing's been heated. No, no, no. Think about a long tube with charcoal at the either end and the right. diamond in the middle, and you right. heat up the diamond. Right. Right. So, so, the, so the charcoal's not being, not being, not directly being heated. So, how do you heat up the diamond if it's inside the tube? With with the fancy death ray. But doesn't the tube fo- just melt? Why doesn't the no, tube melt? No, 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 melt? no, no, no. What's no, the tube no, made no. of? It's glass. Oh right, okay. So that that's going to melt at a higher temperature than the diamond. Yeah. So the light goes oh, through right. the glass, oh, heats up the diamond. Oh, um, right. And, and okay. then, yeah. So anyway, it answered a really big question, right? You know, it was first of all, it's one. It's really cool. You can burn diamond, um, and it's something like I said that jewelers have to worry about today. But actually, it was this kind of like it, you know, we think about it, it's very easy now. We've got tests for oxygen and CO two, and you know, well, tests for oxygen, nitrogen. as everybody knows, is you have it in a test tube, and then you have a glowing splint. The only well, time you use a glowing it will rekindle a glowing splint. That's exactly right. But I preferred that. I fancied that my breast felt particularly light and easy for, and easy for some time afterwards. That's a better <laughs> test. Great stuff. <laughs> anyway, right. To, just to finish the story off, right. Lavoisier, obviously, you know, became you know, it's very expensive to kind of build these big mega death rays. No and shit. So he, he was an aristocrat, right? He could just he, spend the taxes of the peasants who he was suppressing. Well, partially, but then also, he, you know, he was he lived during the French Revolution, um, you know, and so lots of so so the aristocracy were not particularly liked that at the time. Um, anyway, he, he eventually, one of the things he noticed, one of the things he made some money with in order to fund some of his research was that he noticed that if you take some of the ash after um, uh, after you've burned uh, tobacco and put it back in to tobacco, it tastes nicer, right? So he was like, oh, brilliant. I found this way to put things. nicer. Yeah, but <laughs> that is not how the, that's not how the people of France saw that. What they saw him is he was trying to evade uh, paying tax right. on 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 um, tobacco, so they um, they chopped his head off. <laughs> so you know, so so actually, yeah, he was killed um, um, uh, at the age of fifty um, by guillotine uh, um, for exactly that for um, for the fact that he, uh, he he was he was trying to what what's the term they for tax defrauding and selling adulterated tobacco. I think it was a ruse. I think the main reason he got his head chopped off was because he was an aristocrat and there was a revolution. So they would have pinned anything on him, I think. Why do we need Petri, Oscar, Isaac, Transplanting? Hello! Oh, Brian. Hello! (laughs) It's been a while, Brian. How you been? I'm all right, mate. What have you been up to? Oh, not a lot. (laughs) I've had a bit of cold, me and Marjorie. You sound like you've got a bit of a cold, Brian. You had COVID, though, mate. Have you had COVID? Uh, yeah, did have it a bit a oh. bit ago, yeah. Not the bad you, one, the new one. The new one. The no, new that, one. The Omicron. Yeah, anyway, just been out having a walk. Looking around. <laughs> having a walk in, in, in um in Wolverhampton. Yeah, just down right. the cut. Just down the, the cut. cut, just been down the cut. What's the cut? The canal, mate, you Oh sorry. You is, mate, is, that, is that worth a canal yeah. in, in, in Brummy? Oh mate, it's lovely down there. Do you watch Peaky Blinders? Do you know what I don't? They can't I'm sorry, do. Brian. It's bloody rubbish sometimes. Uh, that is. What? How do you, How do you rate their accents in Piggy Blind? The Brummie ones. 
Yeah. I don't know about Bummy. The Black Country ones are all right when they come down on the canal from Dudlight. <laughs> anyway, I love a bit of that. Glad anyway, that was good, Steve. I liked hearing about the diamonds. You liked it. You, you mentioned Joseph Black, you know, he was from around my part. Was he? I think I so. It's funny that how literally everybody I ever talk about is uh, some relation to Wolverhampton. In some oh, way. mate. Yeah. yeah don't, I don't know with those French types, though. No, that's true. Have you, have you ever Eat a load of muck. Eat a load of muck, do they? Garlic and they snails do, do, and things do. like that. Delicious. Oh. Right, Brian, if you if you like the, the Science Shed, one thing you can do, um, if you've been enjoying it listening down by the canal, is is, is try and share it with other, other okay. Wolverhampton w- wanderers. Right. Um, uh, and you can do that online. Um, you can share that via, um, you can contact us there. I'm uh, at Steve the Chemist. Steve the Chemist, Nick, right, Steve yeah. the Chemist. <laughs> and On Nick the Twitter. the Evans Lab. On the Twitters. Twitters? Yeah. Great. Mate, have you got a, have you got a uh, Twitter account? No, of course not, mate. We could make you one. Why don't we make you one? I can look at it online. I have a look to see what's going on in the news, yeah, but I don't true. have my own account. <laughs> okay, well, well, let's keep it that way. You're, oh. you're, 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 you're a digital nomad, aren't you, Brian? That's what you are. I don't know what um, that means, but maybe... Right, so yeah, people people like Science Shed, the best thing they can do is share it, um, and uh, please try and uh, get in touch with us if you have any specific questions, um, or if you've got anything that we'd like you'd like us to talk about. Great, um, not... looking forward to it, brilliant, loved it, okay, right, I'm off mate, I'm off to See the shops. <laughs>